haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here. Uh, those of you joining us online, really happy that you're doing that. Um, today's a little shorter of a service because we do have family feast um, or potluck or covered dish, whatever church tradition you want to come from, or just we're going to eat. Um, so that's going to happen hopefully in about half an hour. So uh, if I go long, it's going to ruin everybody's lunch. So keep this on, on track. So today we're going to continue in our series in Acts. Uh, I want to say thank you to Trish for covering last week uh, while I was in Florida, um, baking under the same sun as you guys here. Uh, it was hot everywhere, so did not love that, but glad to be home. Uh, and we are in week 35 of this series. If you want to catch up on that, uh, they are all on YouTube, and you can find that on our website at lansdown.church and go under teaching, and they're all there. Uh, but we're going to continue in Acts. I'm excited to dive into the beginning of Acts 21 today. Because what we're going to see here is both kind of the, 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 the tension we live in of the pain and the joy of following Jesus. Both are there. Uh, they are both normative to the experience of being a Christian. Uh, so if you've been following along in the series, just a little recap, you might remember Paul is basically here a man on a mission, literally and figuratively. Uh, he's headed to Jerusalem. Uh, his friends think he's nuts for going, the other disciples, um, even the author Luke. But he is determined, and as Paul says, he is compelled by the Spirit. And so um, most of us have maybe experienced this if you follow Jesus for any length of time, uh, but you'll have difficult decisions to make. Uh, you'll, you'll have, can you just like send me a text or an email and just tell me which way to go? But it's not how it works. Um, and the, the kind of paradox of this is that you may have decisions to make that some, even, in, uh, even within our circles of those who are our loved ones, will question our sanity for making the decisions we make. Uh, to follow Jesus. So there's kind of two major themes we want to just touch on this morning. One is the gift of Christian friendship or community, and the other is the cost of discipleship. And, and what's crazy is these are intermarried realities for us. Uh, and so we're going to be a little bit more limited. And so I want to encourage you, because there's a bit of controversy in this text here in Acts chapter 21, uh, that's actually sparked some debate between scholars throughout church history, and we're going to touch on that. But I want to just invite you to study this text on your own. Uh, maybe just go to like Bible Gateway and look at the commentaries there and see the differences. Or Google Acts 21 controversy and you'll find some helpful stuff there. You might find crazy stuff. I don't know. But, uh, and then I want to just encourage you as much as I can to come Friday night. And we'll make that a big part of our discussion uh, on Friday night as well. So um, I'm going to present kind of both sides. But you'll probably figure out where I land on it. It's not a huge theological controversy, but there's some disagreement about the meaning of parts of this text. Uh, so a couple weeks ago when we were last in Acts, we ended with Paul's kind of heartfelt goodbye to the Ephesian elders. You may remember he calls the Ephesian elders to himself, happens to be nearby while he's on his journey, uh, and he loved these elders. They loved him. And at the end of Acts 20, what we read is that they knelt on the beach and prayed together. Uh, and then the group, they kind of escort Paul to the ship in disagreement, like, we wish you wouldn't do this, but all right, you're going to follow God. Uh, and we see this beautiful picture of Christian community, uh, which is one of the values we want to try and have here as a church family. And so Acts 21 opens with a list of the kind of places, the ports, the lengths of stay along his journey to Jerusalem at this point. So I'm going to move really fast through this part. Don't get overwhelmed with names and places that Luke's, let Luke records. What I want to do is just look at the strength of Christian uh, friendship that's expressed here in this first part, and then we'll get to kind of the other uh, main theme. So we're going to start in Acts 21. We're going to work our way through the first 16 verses 
uh, and we will do that fairly quickly. So here we go. Acts 21. And when they had parted from them and set sail, sorry, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So the team, the, the kind of team that is with Paul, they take a small vessel, they go around the southwest tip of Asia Minor, they stop at these two islands, Cause and Rhodes, and they reach the port of Patara, which is on the mainland there. Some of you may have this in your Bibles in the back, Paul's missionary journeys, you may have a map with a little arrow that shows you. Uh, and so they book a trip on then a larger cargo ship, and they head towards the major port of Tyre. Uh, verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So there's your first kind of indication of the little bit of controversy in this text. Verse 5, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, sit, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Okay, so he stays there seven days. When the week is up, uh, the Christians entire accompany this kind of missionary party to the beach, and kind of the same scene as we saw with the Ephesian elders. They kneel down, and they pray on the beach before they say their goodbyes, and they likely know this is the last time that they're ever going to see Paul. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So he travels then south to this city, and he just enjoys one day of fellowship with the Christians there. Um, now, while I was in Florida, I went to one of my friend's church, shout out Tim, and we, uh, we, it was Mission Sunday, so he didn't actually speak that day. Uh, but a couple of people who were involved in missions at his church spoke. And one of the guys that spoke, I've known since I was a young boy, uh, and he was talking about a trip he was about to go on that sounded like this. From this place, we're going to go to this place, then we're going to spend a day there, and then we're going to go here, and we're going to teach these pastors, and we're going to do this. Very similar. So verse 7 continues on into 8. He travels south and enjoys that day of fellowship. Then verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, Mark verse 9, that's important. Understand that. After this city, Telemus, Paul goes to Caesarea, uh, which is the seaside kind of capital of the province of Judea. And it's the location, if you remember back to Acts 10, Peter going to Cornelius' house. This is the same place. Uh, so he stays with Philip. Now, this is the same Philip who distributed food to the widows in Acts chapter 6. That's the birth of the, the role of deacon in the church. Uh, and he's one of the seven original deacons. Uh, and he also evangelized Samaria. And if you remember Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. So he has this really unusual title, evangelist. We don't see that very much in the New Testament. It's kind of special. Uh, and, and even more unusual, as I mentioned in verse 9, is the mention of Philip's daughters. Why? They are unmarried and they prophesy. So in this world, single women prophesying was not normal. Uh, and so Luke wants to make mention of it, that the church perhaps is subverting cultural norms. They were living proof of the prophet Joel's prophecy from the Old Testament, which said both men and women will prophesy. 
And so this is fulfilled by the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. And here we have Luke just kind of making sure you don't forget that that prophecy is fulfilled. So he doesn't draw attention to their specific prophecies. Uh, instead, he mentions that that's a normal part of the church at that point, and that's a whole discussion that I think we need to have. Uh, but instead, he focuses here on the prophecy of someone named Agabus of Judea, uh, and we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. But verse 10, while we were staying for many days, okay, so now they're staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now, I, gotta, I, gotta I just want to pause here and just tell you, this verse makes me, from my non-Pentecostal background, super uncomfortable. Because he just said, thus says the Holy Spirit. That's Old Testament prophet stuff. And I have always been like, yeah, but that's in the Old Testament. Like, that's my assumption. But then God's just like, yeah, but I'm going to just rattle your foundations a little bit. Because here it is in the New Testament, right? So when you read the Bible... There are going to be times when you read it and go, wait a minute, what? Now, this whole system of belief I have over here isn't fitting anymore. Yeah, that's how it is following God. So just know that it happens to me too, right? Verse 12. Oh, sorry, verse 11. He bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So who's speaking there in verse 12? Luke, the author, one of the original disciples of Jesus, is in disagreement with Paul going to Jerusalem. See that? 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? What's he saying? Don't make this harder than it is, guys. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so after his really kind of resolute commitment to go to Jerusalem, we see the kind of really a penultimate scene of Christian fellowship in verses 15 and 16. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So it's hard to read a text like this or any of the other texts up to this point in Acts, particularly about Paul, and not comment on how often Paul is surrounded by Christian friends as he fulfills the calling God has on his life. He is not a lone ranger. He travels with them. He stays with them. He works with them. He visits with them. He's always with Christians in his ministry as he is also in the world doing his thing. So here in Acts 21, we see that they journey together, they spend time together, they talk together, they weep together, no doubt they laugh together, and they definitely pray together. And so it's a great reminder for us that we are made for Christian community. We are made to be with one another. It's no accident that the Bible in the New Testament talks very often about one another, one another, one another. You're made not to do your Christian thing alone. And so even the Apostle Paul needs friends, but the biblical importance isn't at its pinnacle even in Paul. Jesus himself is called what? A friend of sinners. And he calls his disciples friends. So that means Jesus himself walked in community. To live apart from other people is not only to be unlike Paul, but it's to be unlike Jesus. 
Uh, the, the late, great Tim Keller said it like this, to need and to want deep spiritual friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity. And particularly you young men, listen to this part. It is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of health, right? Our, our culture, and I know I keep talking to young men over the last few weeks, but I think it's important. Our culture is particularly telling us as guys that what we need to do is be lone wolves, be alpha males, and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I'm just telling you, that's a lie. You don't need that. You need Christian community because young men, we're foolish and we need others around us just like everybody else. As Paul journeys through these various places, he meets with various groups of people, some he hadn't even previously met. Here is a beautiful reality that we see. The gospel creates spiritual friendships that you need. Male, female, young, old, it doesn't matter. The gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection and his ascension creates spiritual friendships, right? We, I've said this before. If you look around this room on a Sunday, there are people in this room who would not cross paths in the worlds that they live in if it weren't for the gospel because the gospel creates community. And what, what unites this community it's, it's not all, it's not most of the things that we do on a Sunday. It's not music style. It's not preaching style. It's not, uh, definitely not like the building and, and what we have and all that. It's Jesus and the gospel of Jesus that unites us together. And so the Christians entire, even though they barely knew Paul, and some of you had this experience, you go somewhere that you've never been before, you meet other Christians and you're like, oh, we already have a relationship, Right? Even though these Christians entire barely knew the Apostle Paul, what's interesting is they felt free to challenge his decision-making. That's interesting because that happens in community. And Paul lets them and hears them and responds back. They share the deepest commonality with him, which is why they can do this, that they call Jesus Lord like he does. And so friendships happen most typically when two people share something in common. And Christian friendship, Christian community, it has the deepest, most real common denominator that there can be, which is that we call Jesus Lord, that we trust in his gospel. And so because we share a commonality in Jesus, people who might not have otherwise spent time together can become great friends. Uh, no matter how they were before meeting Jesus, Jesus creates spiritual friendships that couldn't have existed otherwise. And if you haven't experienced that, I, I pray for you that you will. Um, but I want to spend the rest of our time, uh, the next about 15 minutes this morning, exploring one, the second kind of major theme in the passage, the cost of discipleship. Uh, if you haven't read the book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do it. It's amazing. Uh, but here's where we get into a bit of the controversy in the text. So what we see is that Paul is very confident that God is leading him to Jerusalem, Right? He's constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of other Christians who are equally as confident, and the Scriptures even say in the Spirit, that God has not called Paul to go to Jerusalem, or at least that they don't want him to go. So what do we do when we hear conflicting voices concerning God's will? So let's go back through the text a little bit. So we know that Paul's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, right? Uh, Luke talks in phrases that imply this, that help us see this. He says, the next day, another boat, we boarded another ship, right? So Paul is moving quickly. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. Why? Well, we know he wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost, even though he knows it's going to involve suffering. 
right? You remember just a couple weeks ago, the text, uh, I'm constrained to get there, even though I know what awaits for me is suffering. And so he doesn't care about the danger. He cares about following God's will, no matter the cost. But the Christians in Tyre, in verse 4, they tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And then Paul doesn't listen to them. He doesn't heed their warning. So is he in the wrong here? What's going on? Verse 7 to 13, Paul stays with Philip. He meets the prophet Agabus. And Agabus, if you kind of didn't catch it, gives Paul an object lesson. Right? He gives him an object lesson, kind of like the, the prophets in the Old Testament would. He takes Paul's belt, which would normally be wrapped several times around the waist, and he ties his own hands and feet up with it, and then he says, this is what's going to happen to Paul. The Jews are going to tie you up, and they're going to hand you over to the Gentile. Now, here's what's interesting. Agabus doesn't forbid Paul from going to Jerusalem. He doesn't tell him, this is what's going to happen, so don't go. He just tells him this is what's going to happen. And then after hearing this prediction, the Christians around Paul, including our author, one of the original disciples, Luke, pleads with Paul to change his plans. So what do we do with this? Well, there are some who have gone as far as to say that Paul is maybe disobedient to the Christian community in going to Jerusalem. Some have said the prophecies are not true prophecies. Others say, actually, the prophecies are good. It's the interpretation of the prophecies in the text that we see that are in error. But here's how I, I love how John Stott, the theologian, explained it like this. We have to draw a distinction between prediction and prohibition. A distinction between prediction and prohibition. They are, uh, Agabus is simply predicting what would happen. The conclusions that Paul's friends make here based on that information, are not infallible. This is the tension of walking in Christian community with one another, all hearing from God together, but also individually. They're human deductions. This helps us to understand verse 4, because it's probably best to take Luke's statement there as a uh, condensed way of saying that the warning was divine while the urging was human. The warning is divine, but the urging is human, right? It's totally normal. If one of you said, the Holy Spirit has told me uh, I should go to this place and do this on that date, and then I'm going to die, for me to be like, ah, but you shouldn't though, right? Because that's my initial response. And so this is consistent though with the Spirit's previous word to Paul to go to Jerusalem, one of my commentaries this week noted that the apostles' submission to God's will sounds a lot like Jesus in Gethsemane. And so, so much so that some have called this Paul's Gethsemane. Jesus didn't look forward to suffering on the cross. Don't get that wrong. Jesus was not out to, to enjoy suffering, but he submits to the Father's plan for it by saying his famous words, not my will, but yours be done. If it can be another way, but not my will, but yours be done. Be done. And, and Paul's anguish in verse 13 has been called, as I said, Paul's Gethsemane. Whether or not you believe Paul was in the wrong, and just cards on the table, I don't. Um, we can all agree, though, this is a difficult, difficult decision for him. And I, this is the cost of following Jesus, though. This is what it is to follow Jesus. Many of us can understand being the dissenting voices, right? Th these people love Paul, they're well intentioned. They want the best for Paul. 
selfishly, they don't want to lose the apostle. Um, but, but this is the cost. They, they see the inevitable suffering. They urge him to choose another path. And I wonder if, in the context of Christian community, uh, if you have ever had any well-intentioned Christians speak against something you felt the Holy Spirit calling you to do. I, I wonder if you've experienced that. Have you experienced kind of going against what the Christian community might be telling you because you know God is calling me here, even though you wouldn't be in the wrong, you just wouldn't be completely following God in the way that he is calling you to. It's not to say we don't listen to godly people that God has placed in our life. Again, this is an area where we have to speak against the current kind of you know, zeitgeist in our culture that says, hey, if anybody says anything you don't like to you, just ghost them. Don't ever talk to him again. Don't listen to that. You do you. No. Notice how Paul keeps coming back to Christian community. He could have just, after the first group said, don't go to Jerusalem, he could have just said, well, forget you. Hop on a boat, go to Jerusalem. Not going to visit anybody else. But he doesn't do that. He continues to come back to the Christian community and reaffirm, I, I hear what you're saying, but man, I, I just can't, I can't rattle this Holy Spirit call that I have. Refusing to allow Christian friends to speak into our lives, again, is not tough or hard or mature. It's foolishness. It is foolishness to not have other Christians who are following Jesus just like you speaking into your lives. But there are times we live in this tension when God's plan for us might not even make sense to believers around us. Now, I'm not talking about you feeling like God is calling me to do this sinful thing. No, he's not, right? That's not what we're talking about here. God calling you to do something that's righteous and good for him that might lead to a little bit of earthly pain is not the same thing. So there's times when God's plan for us might not even make sense to believers around us. But even Jesus himself was urged by his own friends and disciples to avoid pain and suffering but what did he do? He continued on because he knew what God had called him to. And for our sake, praise God that he did. Right? So regardless of the cost, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we follow him. We follow him. We love Christian community. We love people, but we love Jesus more. Now, one of the most fun parts of being a pastor of an Alliance church is that a few times a year, uh, international workers, when they come and you see them on Sunday or maybe the Saturday event or the Friday night dinner, we typically do. But I, because of my job and my role here, I t typically have an opportunity to spend a little bit more time with them. Maybe I'm driving them somewhere. We get to have a conversation. Uh, and, and so, um, or like happened recently, uh, many of you remember the international worker we had recently uh, from Asia. Uh, she got, she lives in Delaware. She came to BWI to have a flight got stuck at the airport. Amy and I get a call like, hey, can I like crash at the parsonage for a night because my flight got canceled. So we went and picked her up at the airport. She came back to the house, hung out with Amy and I for a while, took her back to the airport the next morning, left her there for a couple hours. That flight got canceled, went back, picked her up, brought her back to hang out some more. By that evening, we had gone to the airport like four or five times in a couple days. And so we had a lot of great conversations in the car about trusting God uh, in particular. And so Here's the reason I bring that up. I would guarantee you, if any of you talk to any of our international workers or any missionary that you ever meet or anybody who's been serving in uh, some kind of difficult ministry, 
guaranteed they've had this kind of conversation with other Christian friends. Are you sure you want to go as a single young woman to Asia to minister? That's so far away. Are you sure uh, other international workers in our district, you want to take your young kids and go to Paris? That's so far away. Are you sure you're going to do this? Are you sure? Well, I don't know. It seems kind of difficult, right? All of us uh, would be in that uh, category of people saying, ah, I don't know. And yet, at the same time, they have followed Jesus and praise God that they did and that they do. There are so many stories like this in the history of the church and in our own movement as the Christian Missionary Alliance. I, I read a bunch of them. I was going to share a bunch, but we have limited time today. And so I just want to share this one story that stuck out to me from kind of the history of missions in the Western world. Uh, there's a man named John G. Patton. He served for 10 years as the Passover church in Glasgow, Scotland. He was born in Scotland, and he passed in Australia uh, because God began to burden his heart for the Pacific Islands, which at that time happened to be filled with cannibalistic tribes who had no knowledge of the gospel. 20 years earlier, before he began to feel this call, two missionaries themselves had been cannibalized by some of these tribes. And so he received, as you would imagine, opposition from everywhere. Uh, the church even offered him more money to stay. Now, that's an interesting strategy to get a raise, but um, they offered him more money to stay. Uh, one, one older man in his congregation protested, uh, and he said, when one man protested, Patton said this back, and this is the quote that kind of got me. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years, and now your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Like Paul, this guy, Patton, wouldn't be persuaded. And here's what's crazy to think about. Soon, he would be putting the Lord's Supper, what we call the body and the blood of Jesus, into the hands of those who had practiced cannibalism and had been redeemed by the gospel, right? Amazing stuff. But this is the attitude that Paul had that we see here. Like people will say to you, well, you're going to go do that. It's going to be dangerous. You might die. I already died. I, I've been died and born again, and I'm going to die physically anyway, no matter what, right? In case you forgot, it's coming. So it that part of it is taken away when we know Jesus. Why? Because like Patton here and like Paul, if you read his writings, the resurrection is a reality for us. So what's the lesson here from this text? We have to simultaneously hold in tension the deep value we need to have for Christian community. And with it, in the, in the Christian community, the input of others. But ultimately, we must follow God's will. Right? You, you have to be in Christian community to know, ah, man, I hear this. I hear this wisdom. That is wise. But at the same time, I just, can't, I just can't get it out of my mind that this is what God is calling me to do. And you keep coming back to Christian community and going, I think this is what God wants me to do. And they go, yeah, but it's dangerous. And you're like, yeah, I know, but God wants me to do this. And eventually you follow God's will. And in the words of the pastor, John Piper, he said, Lord, keep me faithful to the job. Then let me drop and go to my reward. Death is just not that important to us anymore. The reality is that when we see Christ, we will not have regret having followed him. Following Jesus is costly, but hear me, not following Jesus is more costly. 
We have to admit it's easy to see how an unbeliever or even a maybe young Christian could look at Paul's life or even the life of Jesus and say, man, that seems like such a waste. But Scripture gives us a different perspective, a different view through the lens of the gospel. Jesus said these words to his disciples about pursuing material gain and and worldly comfort instead of him in Mark chapter 8. Jesus said this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now let me just tell you, that doesn't mean going out and getting killed on the mission field only. You know what else that means? Losing your life, dying to yourself every day and doing the will of Jesus, right? What does it mean for me as a husband? It means putting my selfishness to death and serving my family when I really don't want to, because I really don't want to sometimes. I really don't, but that's wickedness that needs to die in me. And by losing my life, what do I find? I find real life. I find true life. Not life that's wrapped up in my own narcissistic self that caves in on me, but life that's lived in the service of others, that bears fruit. So there's a cost to following Jesus, a cost that others may not see. And yet, following Jesus is always, always worth it. It's always worth it. So the question I want to leave you with today is the question I always hopefully leave you with, are you following Jesus today? Are As we say in our language about discipleship, are you moving towards Jesus today? If not, why? Come to Jesus, follow him, no matter the cost to you. Let's pray. Jesus, again, we thank you for these stories of those who have gone before you and served. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you would allow us uh, to follow you just in the same way. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and empower us, to fill us in the way that you do when we're gathered, so that as we scatter from here today and we go about our day-to-day lives, that we would still be filled with you and empowered by you so that we can uh, follow you, Jesus, no matter what the cost is. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So.